This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange... Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. I am Terry from Texas. Let's get started. We're going to be talking about hidden treasure, buried treasure lost treasure and we're going to start with a mystery from the superstition mountains everyone loves a treasure hunt very few things are more exciting than the aspect of rolling up your sleeves like indiana jones or national treasures ben gates and uncovering a long hidden hoard of gold and making the cover of all the papers but how far would you go for fortune and glory would you climb into a hell mouth? The definition of a hell mouth is the entrance to hell, appearing as the gaping mouth of a huge monster, an image which first appears in Anglo-Saxon art. The Superstition Mountains are a mountain range east of Phoenix and are known for their picturesque volcanic peaks and jagged canyons. But they're even better known for something else, the legendary Lost Dutchman's Mine, a much ballyhooed secret stash of wealth sought by daring adventurers known as Dutch Hunters. But George Johnston, President Emeritus of the Superstition Mountain Museum, claims that more hikers disappear in the superstitions than any other mountain range, with an average of four or five hikers disappearing or dying there annually. This could be due to the range's sheer drop-offs, deep canyons, wild swings in temperature, or unfriendly wildlife. Or it could be related to the strange sounds, mysterious disappearances, and unexplained deaths that led to the feeling of superstition that gave the range its name. Let's safely peer into the Hellmouth and search for the truth of the mysterious Lost Dutchman's Mine, shall we? As is true of nearly any sufficiently old and popular legend, there are many variations on the tale of the Lost Dutchman's Mine, but most complete versions start with the Peralta family, 
According to Arizona Central, the Peraltas were a wealthy Mexican family led by patriarch Don Miguel Peralta, who operated several mines in the area of the Superstition Mountains. However, in other tellings of the story, the Peraltas were cattle ranchers. At any rate, tales agree that the Peraltas somehow came across a large deposit of gold in the Superstition Mountains. That's the good news. The bad news is they all died. Well, almost all. After all, if all were killed, who'd tell the story? As is typical for this type of story, there are plenty of versions, but the key detail is that a group of Apaches killed all the Peraltas but one. Maybe it was because they didn't like the way the miners were treating land sacred to them. Maybe they wanted the gold for themselves. Maybe they felt possessive about the mine and its treasures. Or maybe it was just one of those run-of-the-mill, no-reason massacres that people think happened all the time. Well, sure, didn't they? Happened on every western I ever saw. At any rate, the Peralta Massacre is a major element of the story and commemorated by place names such as Massacre Falls. In one version of the story, it was a different family who was killed while the Peraltas made off with a fortune while hiding all trace of their minds, like jerks. The story doesn't end there because we haven't even gotten to a Dutchman yet. And yes, there's a spoiler, there is never a Dutchman. The next player in the tale is one Dr. Abraham Thorne, who is not Dutch. According to the Lost Dutchman Days website, Thorne was a doctor from Illinois who wanted nothing more than to travel west and practice medicine among Native American tribes in the southwest. When President Lincoln created a reservation for the Apache along the Verde River, Thorne got his chance. Dr. Thorne would spend years living among the Apache, tending to their sick and wounded, and garnering respect from tribal leaders. In 1870, in order to repay his kindness, Elders of the tribe promised they would take Thorn to a place with lots of gold. Their one strange, yet convenient, and almost always added in, condition was that Thorn had to be blindfolded when they took him to the gold. With his eyes covered, Thorn was taken on a journey of about 20 miles. When the blindfold was removed, he saw a sharp pinnacle of rock, generally interpreted to be Weaver's Needle, which is a most notable landmark of the superstitions. In front of him, he saw a huge pile of gold nuggets against the canyon wall, and he gathered up as much as he could carry and later sold the nuggets for $6,000, presumably in $1870. There's still a lot of story to go. We might as well get really weird with it, as many of these stories go. How do you find a treasure? Well, you use a treasure map, of course. But a treasure that is shrouded in mystery, such as the lost Dutchman's mine, can have no ordinary map. Nope. The secret of the Dutchman is allegedly laid out in the Peralta stones, named for the family, which are a series of etched stones, some rectangular, some shaped like crosses, some like hearts, that allegedly indicate the location of the vast riches of the superstitions. If only you can read them right. The various stones have been named the trail maps, the priest map, the horse map featuring a horse drawn with a dis 
disturbingly succulent butt. The stone crosses and the heart map. The heart map features not one but two pop-out hearts, including the so-called Latin heart, which bears a number of inscriptions in not entirely accurate Latin. According to author Jim Hatt, these stones were found in the 1940s on the side of the road by a police officer named Travis Tumlinson. But the names Pedro and Miguel on the stones stands as evidence that these weird coated maps belong to the Peralta family and the stones were spilled on the roadside during the Apache massacre. Finally, the Dutchman does come in, sort of. Like we said, there is no Dutchman, at least in the sense that there's no one from the Netherlands in this story. There is a German man, let's call it. The Dutchman terminology comes from the same mix-up of the words Deutsch, which is German for German, and Dutch, which is English for Dutch. The difference of being from Germany or being from the Netherlands. That gives us such terms as Pennsylvania Dutch because they're German. The German man in question is one Jacob Waltz, like the sweeping dance, but various spellings of his name abound, so it's up for grabs. Though a second German man with a suspiciously similar name, Jacob Weiser, is often included in the tale. In a version of the story related by True West magazine, Waltz and Weiser were prospectors who hadn't yet found their big score until one night they saved a man's life in a cantina brawl. That man turned out to be, wait for it, Don Miguel Peralta, who in gratitude told the two men the location of his family's bountiful mine in the Superstition Mountains. Weiser disappeared under some mysterious circumstances. In some versions, he was killed by Apaches. In others, he was killed by Waltz. But Waltz would return to the mine whenever he needed money, then pop back into town, making it rain, or in this case possibly hail, because of the stones, with gold nuggets reportedly of the richest ore anyone had ever seen. Waltz allegedly died of pneumonia in the winter of 1891 with a sack of gold under his bed. Since that moment, the search for the lost Dutchman's mine has been on. The story of the Dutchman and his unimaginable bounty would soon catch the public imagination and become one of the best known and most sought after treasures in American history. During the mid 20th century, when westerns were especially popular, the tale of the lost Dutchman's mind was a popular motif. The 1945 book, Thunder God's Gold by Barry Storm, tells of the author's real-life attempts to find the gold mine himself during the 1930s and 1940s. This book inspired the 1949 movie, Lust for Gold, which starred Glenn Ford as Jacob Waltz and Ida Lupino as a very whitewashed Julia Thomas who was Waltz's neighbor who took care of him on his deathbed and who was allegedly the one person he told the location of the mine, although she couldn't find it either. Likewise, the mine found its way onto TV, such as in a 1961 episode of the Western series Laramie and more improbably, a 13-episode serialized story on the Hanna-Barbera cartoon Rough and Ready. The mine and its secrets have similarly inspired video games. Try to say that word fast. The mine and its secrets have similarly inspired video games and amusement park rides. 
Even the Park Service got in on that sweet Dutch action, opening the Lost Dutchman State Park in 1977, which includes trails named for figures in the legend, like Jacob Waltz and the Peralta family. Much of what we've discussed up till now is pretty deep into legend territory, even though there really was a Jacob Waltz, or Waltz, spelled W-A-L-Z or W-A-L-T-Z, and there was really a Julia Thomas. But the event that really spurred interest in the Lost Dutchman's mind before the movies, before Barry Storm, was the real-life disappearance and death of treasure hunter Adolph Ruth. According to Arizona Central, Ruth was a 66-year-old veterinarian employed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Animal Husbandry, who had a long-standing obsession for locating the fabled Lost Dutchman Mine. When he acquired a number of maps to old mines, Ruth became something of an amateur treasure hunter, and in an attempt to find a mine in California, had fallen down a ravine, permanently injuring one of his legs. But his luck wasn't any better than it had been in California. Within days, Ruth had disappeared without a trace. It wasn't until later that campers discovered a note in a bottle written by Ruth saying that he had, again, broken his leg and needed help. But perhaps of more interest was the note's casual postscript, P.S., have found the lost Dutchman. When Ruth's body was found in a gold-lust-fueled search in December of 1932, the mystery only deepened. Although Ruth's note concerning his broken leg and need for help led searchers to believe that he must have starved to death waiting for rescue, as Arizona Central reports, but new theories popped up after the discovery of his skull with a hole in it that, according to the coroner's reports, was created by an army-style 44 caliber revolver, which in my opinion is a terribly awkward way of saying it, but then I'm not a 1930s era coroner. The most common suggestion, of course, was that Ruth was killed for his maps by someone else familiar with the legend of the Dutchman's mine, though officials suggested suicide was more likely. But in Thunder God's Gold, Barry Storm alleges that on his own search for the mine, he had barely escaped the fire of a sniper he called Mr. X, who he believed was protecting the mine. He suggests that Adolf Ruth may have also gotten too close and fallen prey to this mysterious sniper, who apparently uses a revolver instead of a rifle. Wait, it gets weirder. A month after the discovery of Ruth's skull, the rest of his remains were found almost a mile away, confirmed by the presence of the steel plate in his leg from his previous treasure hunting injury. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Among the relics of his body was a checkbook in which he had been writing daily notes of his adventures. In this book was a description that modern Dutch hunters believe proves he found the mine because it was punctuated with Julius Caesar's classic line, Vini Vidi Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Now, if you know anything about human nature, 
Ruth's disappearance and mysterious death did not dissuade anyone from following in his footsteps, and in fact, the headlines brought on by his story only inspired thousands of imitators. A report states that a prospector by the name of James A. Cravey thought he could beat the odds of finding the mine by using a helicopter in 1947. His headless body was found months later, tied up in a blanket with his skull 30 feet away. The coroner reported no evidence of foul play. What is it about headless corpses in this story? The Phoenix New Times relays the story of Jesse Capon, a 35-year-old Denver resident who disappeared searching for the mine in 2009. Arizona Central reports on the bodies of three more men found in 2011 who had been lost in 2010 while seeking the mine, one of whom had been lost and rescued the year before in the same search. Why is there so much death and disaster surrounding this beautiful stretch of American land? Is it because foolhardy adventurers travel ill-prepared into an area they don't understand, looking passionately and in vain for something that may not exist? Oh no, of course not. Obviously, it's because the mountain is a hellmouth. Yeah, we'll take that one. Many people in the area believe the Superstition Mountains were sacred to the local Native Americans who believed it to be the home of the Thunder God who housed a great treasure there that he would protect at all costs. Another explanation of the types of summer storms common in Apache Junction makes the connection between the mountain and a God of Thunder clear and believable. But that's not all. Sound like a as seen on TV ad. But there's more. As others suggest, some believe there's a hole at the top of the mountain that leads clear through to the underworld. It is from this hole that all the winds in the world issue forth. There are reports of strange voices and shadows that emerge from the area, as well as various sightings of aliens. You know I knew it. I just stinking knew aliens had to make an appearance. And lizard people. Now I wonder if they're Gorn or Sleestack. But you can Google that stuff yourself. The point is that people have had some strange ideas about the place and all the death and mystery surrounding it. So is there gold in them thar hills? Should you load up a backpack with slim gems and novelty colored mountain dews in an attempt to uncover gold that has variously belonged to a non-Dutch Dutchman, a blindfolded doctor, a Mexican mining family, a tribe of Apaches, and the Thunder God himself? Well, no, almost certainly not. Tom Colenborn, who is by far the most prolific author on the Superstition Mountains and its surroundings, says, I have never found any evidence that really suggested the mine existed. Everything is based off subjective hearsay. Actual facts about the lost mine just don't exist. And if the word of the world's leading expert on the area isn't enough for you, Thinking Muse points out that the geology isn't there. The superstitions are volcanic, and a volcanic rock does not tend to have a lot of gold in it. Okay, what if, as some say, the mine isn't really a mine, but rather a cache in which the Peraltas hid their vast wealth? As Skeptoid and others point out, there's no evidence that the Peraltas ever mined the superstitions, or indeed, ever even lived in Arizona. The Peraltas only ever mined in California, and anything different was a contrivance of later authors looking to build up the legend. 
One thing there is evidence for is that maybe the lost Dutchman's mind is safer left to the realm of myth. I would say so. Our next story involves missing Texas loot. By 1914, Willis Newton was fed up with being a dirt-poor cotton farmer in Uvalde County, Texas. To this, however, the town folks of Uvalde probably would have scoffed, questioning whether the man had ever really worked a day in his life. By this time, Newton had already gained a reputation as a thief from a very young age. Evidently, the Newton boys, the Newton brothers, had started breaking into stores when they were still kids, and before long, if something went missing anywhere within hundreds of miles of Uvalde, it was quickly presumed to have been the fault of the Newton boys. But breaking into stores would not meet the ambitions of four out of five of the Newton boys, as they soon progressed to robbing banks and trains. Willis was the first to rob the railroad when he and a friend boarded a train at Klein, Texas, and after taking everything of value from its passengers, they disembarked just short of Spofford in Kinney County with some $4,700 in their pockets. Later, when Willis was in Durant, Oklahoma, he joined a gang who robbed a bank in Boswell, making off with some $10,000. By 1919, four of the five Newton brothers, Willis, Willie, who was also named Doc, Jess, and Joe, were serving time in different prisons for various crimes. Willis and Joe were released that year, and Willis soon convinced his brother that they should form their own gang. The next year, Doc escaped from a prison in Texas and quickly joined his brothers, who then were residing in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The next spring, Jess was released, making up the final member of the gang. Between 1919 and 1924, the Newton gang would rob 87 banks, six trains, and they took more loot than the Dalton Boys, Butch Cassidy, and the James Gang combined. Stretching all over the United States, the gang hit their home state of Texas, as well as Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, North Dakota, Illinois, Wisconsin, and even ventured into Canada. Most of their bank heists were committed at night after they had cased the joint for several days. Using nitroglycerin, they would blow open the safes, take the cash, and quickly disappear. On one occasion, they robbed two banks in Hondo, Texas, on the same night. Though they preferred to do their work at night to avoid meeting anyone, they were known to commit robberies during the day on some occasions, where their victims described them as extremely polite, and they went out of their way to make sure that the people in the bank or on the train were comfortable and not too upset, explaining that they would never hurt anyone. And during these many escapades, they never did. Willis was in 1976 reported to have claimed, We never killed anybody, and we never wanted to. All we wanted was the money. Robbing banks and trains was our way of getting it. That was our business. Amazingly, these many robberies were not connected to, nor were the Newton brothers ever suspected in them. That was until their final robbery, which, due to the large amount taken, brought down the combined forces of several law enforcement agencies. On June 12, 1924, the Newton boys joined up with two Chicago gangsters, a Chicago racketeer, and a postal inspector, and robbed a train at Rondout, Illinois. 
netting them more than three million dollars. It was the largest train robbery in history. Boarding a mail train in Chicago, the postal inspector named William Fahey, along with Willis Newton, forced the train to stop at Rondout and demanded that the mail sacks containing some three million dollars in cash and securities be thrown from the train, enforcing their demands by firing bullets and tear gas into the car. In the confusion, Willie Doc Newton was hit in the leg by a stray bullet. With the cash, the Newton boys loaded the wounded Willie into a waiting car and took off. While they were loading him up, a bystander heard one of them call him Willie, which gave authorities a lead on the outlaws. A few days later, when the police got a tip that a wounded man was being cared for in a Northside Chicago house, they followed up and the gang's plans began to unravel. Within days, Doc, Willis, and Joe Newton had been arrested. However, Brother Jess had managed to get out of Chicago and headed toward Texas with about $35,000 in cash from the robbery. But Jess made a mistake when he decided to get drunk in San Antonio. Sure that he needed to hide the stolen loot, he hired a cab that took him into the country where he buried the cash. The very next day, he decided he should go to Mexico and return to dig up the money. Just one problem. He couldn't remember where he buried it. He even located the cab driver who had driven him the night before, but as it turned out, and probably happened pretty often in those days, the cab driver had also been drinking. Blind leading the blind. And he wasn't able to remember where they had gone either. After searching for some time, Jess finally abandoned the idea and headed to Mexico anyway. But his freedom was short-lived when a federal agent located him in Villa Acuna and brought him back across the border. All eight were eventually arrested and except for about $100,000, the stolen loot was returned in exchange for lighter sentences. All eight went to prison with William J. Fahey, the postal official who had masterminded the robbery, receiving the longest sentence of 25 years in the federal pen at Leavenworth, Kansas. After serving their time, the Newton brothers were released from prison and returned to their hometown of Uvalde, Texas. Jess Newton lived the remainder of his life as a cowboy in Uvalde. He died on March 4, 1960. But you know, old habits die hard, and in 1968, in Rowena, Texas, Doc Newton, who was by then in his mid-70s, made a bungled attempt at breaking into the bank. Because of his age, he was turned loose. Doc died in 1974 at the age of 83. In 1973, Willis Newton was implicated in a bank robbery in Brackettville, Texas. For any of you like movie history, Brackettville is where they filmed the Alamo with John Wayne. But there wasn't enough evidence to prove a case against him. He later died in August of 1979. Joe Newton became the owner of a cafe along with other small businesses in Uvalde. He died at the age of 88 in February of 1989. But he actually appeared on the Johnny Carson show one time and was interviewed. As to the missing $100,000, it has never been found even though the Newton brothers themselves hunted for it after their release from prison. Willis said that Jess buried the money on top of a hill where he dug a hole and put a large rock over it. 
In court and under oath, Jess had testified that he buried the money somewhere along Fredericksburg Road. But from what he told his brothers, Willis was convinced it was more likely on the road to Bandera. Is it safe or wise to go after fabled treasure? Probably not. Can it sometimes be profitable? Oh, heck yeah. Well, folks, that's the end of the show for this week. That's the stories I have for you. Hope you enjoyed them. Not so mysterious, but just kind of odd, off-the-wall things. I enjoyed bringing them to you, and I hope you'll listen again. Remember that you can listen to Aaron Hunter on Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, on Mondays. Aaron Frail on Aaron's Horror Show on Tuesdays. Terry's Mysterious Moments with me, Terry from Texas, on Wednesdays. Alternating week on, week off. On Thursdays, we have Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. And we also have some video shows from Full Dark Productions. And they have that, and they have one called The Witching Hour. Remember to go to your app store, whether it be on Apple or on Android, and download the RPA app. It's the one with the big blue eye on a black background. And you'll be able to get directly into the shows. Anyway, that's it for this week. And I hope you all have a great next week. Thank you for being here. And remember to come back. And if you have any comments, please contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook. Or at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.